0: PS, the Puget Sound Podcast, where we're talking with members of our campus community about their Puget Sound experiences. I'm Elena Becker, and my guest today is Professor Elisa Kessel, a professor of political theory. We talk about what it means to be a professor, her thoughts on democracy in the present moment, and the role of the individual and the collective in the democratic process. After the break, We discuss Elisa's current research, and I want to give you a heads up that that conversation involves extensive discussion of consent and sexual assault. I'll provide another warning before that point, so if you'd like to listen to the first half of this episode and stop listening when we reach that sensitive content, you'll hear from me again at that point. Today, as always, the Puget Sound podcast is recorded and produced by Moonyard Studio right here in Tacoma. Here's Professor Kessel. Elisa, welcome to the podcast having me. I'm so delighted to have you here and I want to say I make an effort when I have faculty on the podcast to um, address you all in the way that I know you have students address you. So some folks really like professor or doctor, some folks use their first name and I asked you before we started what you wanted me to do and I thought your answer uh, was just the best. So I'm going to ask you to tell people how you tell your students to address you before we get into anything else.
1: Sure, when I, when I- a class starts particularly at the beginning of the year, but certainly anytime I'm starting a new class, I invite students to call me either Professor Kessel, if that feels comfortable to them, or Elisa, um, if that feels comfortable to them, um, and that I don't have a preference either way. Um, that's not true for all professors, but it is true for me. But what I told you was that I tell them specifically that what they shouldn't call me or any of their professors is by an honorific other than professor. So you shouldn't call me Mrs. Kessel and you shouldn't call me Ms. Kessel. You should call me professor or doctor if you're going to use the title. And that's probably true for anyone in the collegiate setting who's teaching a class. Any of your instructors, you should refer to as professor or doctor, um, which I know we we're going to talk about the difference between high school and um, and college. And that's that's probably an important difference. We are t- differently trained and have different credentials.
0: Well, and it is, I think, a a thing that's maybe not self-evident to somebody coming out of high school, because it's interesting to me, since I started doing this job, I get Mrs. Becker a lot, like to my face or in emails. And one, I'm not married 2 I've never been Mrs. Becker, right? Like that's not in my wheelhouse, but I understand the impulse to if that's mostly been how you've interacted with authority figures or how you've sort of shown respect to want to do that and maybe not realize, as you've said, there's a different title or a different honorific. No, that's right. And it's, and I think that's why I'd say the default, if
1: you're ever not sure, is always to refer to anyone who's instructing you in a college class as professor um, or doctor. And they'll tell you if the, that is incorrect or if you should
0: say (laughs) something different, Mm -hmm. but that way you're covering your bases. And I always thought it was nice too. So many professors at Puget Sound are okay with it if you address them by their first name, but some aren't. And I always felt like, it takes six, eight years to get a PhD. If you would like to be addressed as doctor at the end of it to reflect that accomplishment, that always felt awesome to me. I always felt like that made so much sense if that's what somebody
1: wanted. Yeah. And I think the other part of that is that the position of the faculty member, um, and their experience actually is a big part of that as well. Like when I first started and I, uh, I was younger and I looked younger. (laughs) Um, uh, It felt a little more important to me um, to use that title um, so that people um, understood that I was in a professional role Mm -hmm. and that I had had that training, which they might've thought I was too young to have had. Sure. Um, So I think that's important to think about too.
0: Well, and I want to get right into what that training is and what your role is, because that's another thing I noticed that is often... um, I guess I'll say a little abstract to students who are thinking about what college will be like. They understand that there are instructors and oftentimes have a frame of reference from high school for thinking about what that's like. But the position and work of a college professor is is actually quite unique, and I'm hoping you can talk to that a little bit.
1: Yeah. Um, so um, so a professor's training uh, is usually it's it's a doctoral degree, um, and that is 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 training mostly in research actually. And so uh, we have two real tasks. One is to be uh, a teacher um, of things that we have studied and know uh, pretty well. Um, and the other is to actually do our own research, independent research on different things. So we're going to talk maybe a little bit later about my, my research. Um, but a big part of my life is teaching my students. And another big part of my life is doing my own research. So in addition to reading all of the stuff I read to teach the classes that I teach and preparing for lectures and grading essays and things like that, I'm also trying to do my own writing. Um, I'm doing my own reading for the projects that I'm working on. And a lot of us are doing our own data collection and those kinds of things. And so um, sometimes that's more visible to students, um, certainly for uh, students who are um, uh, in a labs, uh, a, a, excuse me, a natural science, we'll, they'll, they might, they'll, they'll see that more explicitly when they're working with a professor in a lab. It's probably a little less visible uh, for those of us who do like, <laughs> work alone in dusty archives with giant books or something like that. Um, but that's how I spend a lot of my time, um, uh, a lot of my summer. So the sort of the, the, the expectation that we have summers off is not, is not correct. It's the time uh, on this campus when many of us are trying really hard to make as much progress as we can on our research projects, knowing that during the school year, it'll be a little harder to do that.
0: And what do you teach? What are you a professor of?
1: So uh, my degree is in, my doctoral degree is in political science. Uh, The name of our department on this campus is politics and government. And my specific area of focus is called political theory. And um, politics and government, traditionally um, political scientists are trained, I should say, in in one of four fields. Um, One of those fields is US politics, which is just like it sounds, you study the US um, and uh, the political arrangements of the US. One of them is international relations. Um, International relations is the study of relationships between states. So this is where you'd see international law, international institutions and arrangements, foreign policy, um, study of war and conflict, study of human rights, uh, those kinds of things. Um, Comparative politics is looking at the relation, it's comparing States. So, for example, if you wanted to look at uh, two different states that had parliamentary systems and 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 see how they got different outcomes or something like that, um, and then what I do is political theory, which is kind of like the um, the outlier of the bunch. I would say um, what political theorists study are um, uh, ideas. So, um, whereas my colleagues are often thinking about questions like. Um, you know, why do people vote the way they do? Or why do states act the way they do? Um, uh, the questions that I ask always have the word ought in them. So how, sh- how, how ought we to think about democratic behavior? How ought we to treat each other if we value freedom? And so it's very definitional and it's very aspirational. It's very much about what we hope, um, uh, or dream up politically rather than what is actually happening in the world. So um, I'll note that the word theory, um, I'm going to just say this, I love this question you asked me, is the word theory scares or bores people? And the question I thought was, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it's not boring. No one says that. That's not true. And I know it's not true. But here's, and and my students uh, would would appreciate me doing this because I do it to them all the time. Let me give you a little bit of etymology and a little bit of word history here. Yeah, the word theory comes from the Greek word theoria, which means vision. And so that is a word that really guides what I think we do, which is, is to say that it's one thing to ask yourself uh, whether a state is functioning like a democracy. It's another thing to ask yourself what your vision is for a democratic community.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's what political theory is. And that's why it's not boring. It's awesome. Well, the reason, sort of the core reason I wanted to talk to you about this, besides the fact that I'm interested in it, and I like any opportunity I can to talk to you about political theory, is that my sense after I came to college was that if you had the scared or bored reaction to theory, you probably had not encountered somebody doing it right. Because my experience of that was always if someone had sort of bandied about kind of a... um, obscure or obscured thinker to try and win an argument, right? Right. Or to try and provide a, a test of whether or not you already knew something and could recite back, you know, two sentences to sum up John Locke. And that is very different to what you're talking about, which is this very creative enterprise of thinking about not just what has happened and not just what have people thought in the past, but what do we want? What might we wish to actualize in the way we think about our systems? I think that's right, and and I love that you used the word creative there because to me it is very creative.
1: I think one thing that happens is that when you're thinking about how you want the world to be, you often have to contend with how it is, mm-hmm. and uh, and so and that can feel bleak. At times, right? There are moments when you're like, How do we want democracy to lurk? What are the hopes for democracy right now? And as um, you I said, we're not starting from scratch. No, not at all. Right? No, many, many, many centuries of these questions being asked, <laughs> they are perennial questions. <laughs> they have they have not been answered and they won't be, right? It'll it'll always be an ongoing thing. But I always tell my students <clears throat> that I think of political theory as it's got this very strong critical bent to it, but it is a fundamentally optimistic enterprise.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? That it is really about dreaming anew, um, thinking seriously about what justice means, what equality really looks like, what democracy is, um, and thinking in those, in those, in those, in those concepts and dreaming up, hoping for something other than what we have.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and those concepts, of course, have all spilled over into our public discourse in the last year in a big, big way, whether that is our conversations about race and racism in the United States or conversations about whether or not the U.S. is anti-democratic or becoming anti-democratic. And, you know, that has been underscored with all of the conversations we've been having about the franchise and the right to vote. As you experience those narratives, are there things that you think are missing from the conversation when it spills out into discussing things like democracy in those big, broad terms? That's such a good question.
1: Um, I don't think things are missing. Um, I guess that's not what I would that's not what I would say. Um, so when I think about something like American democracy, I think we can think about that in a couple of dimensions. So one dimension is to think at the level of the institution, right? Are is our government structured in a way? Does it preserve the vote? Was that election legitimate? Like those are questions about about uh, really about about structure. Do we have the right institutional arrangements? Uh, what are the courts doing? What are members of Congress doing? Um, and I, and I do think that there's some really interesting public discourse about those things. There's a great book written by two political scientists called How Democracies Die. It's written for a popular audience. I think it might even be a New York Times bestseller and that's a great book for thinking about questions about institutions. The other piece of that though, is to think about <clears throat> democracy as um, something that's cultural, right? That is, it isn't enough to have Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, It isn't enough to have like a one person, one vote kind of rule. It isn't enough to have a a court system that is, um, you know, impartial. It isn't enough to have uh, elected officials who are, who are in fact elected um, by uh, citizens. If there isn't uh, a sense of a broader sense of what it means to live in a democracy, right? That is to say, you're in a community. You're in a community with people who have different um, concerns and beliefs, um, and your willingness to work with them or not work with them will have a lot will have a large impact on whether or not the democracy succeeds or fails. And so, I think what one thing that people are feeling a lot, but might not quite have words for is uh, a sense of a decline in democratic political culture in the United States um, and that is getting replaced by a, um, um, a, a an intensely, um, we call it asymmetric polarization. Polarization, um, but polarization uh, really driven specifically by changes in the agenda of the political right at the moment um, and those, which isn't a way of laying blame, it's a way of saying like, when you actually look and try and measure movement of parties and where their ideas are moving, the democratic party is not moving very much. And if it is moving, it's actually moving a little to the right, but the right's moving farther to the right. So that's what that means. Sure. And I guess I'd say um, people are sensing and feeling that um, their anxiety is about the loss of a political culture in which it even feels possible to talk to people you disagree with who are in your family much less who are in a different community, right? And so I think I think that's the, right now to me, that's the most pressing question for American democracy.
0: Well, and as you rightly said, I do think there are ideas that our public discourse associates with democracy as a term that perhaps are features of American democracy that we notice as we shift away from them or as we find our way towards a different political climate. But I imagine to you as someone who teaches courses on democracy and liberalism, that you are thinking about democracy in a much larger tradition outside the American context too. So even features I might think of as integral to our democracy and they are to integral to American democracy. If we think about freedoms in the constitution that I imagine there are some things we've sort of opted into as a country and a collective that, um, are, are a big part of American democracy, but maybe not necessary for democracy itself.
1: Yeah. Or they might be differently construed, Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. This is this is a response, not that's not so much a question. It's just sort of engaging in a conversation here. Um, years ago, when I was in graduate school, um, one of the professors in the, my graduate program was he. He had a joint appointment in the law school um, where I was studying, and his he had. I just thought this sort of fascinating job. He would um, go write constitutions. <laughs> or emerging democracies. And at the time I was in graduate school, this meant um, Afghanistan and Iraq in particular. And I remember him giving a talk in our department one time and he and he said something along the lines of this sort of relationship between the institutional and the democr- and the cultural. And, and he was talking about Iraq in particular. He's like, it, there is no um, way that, unless people have um, cultivated over time a commitment to actually being in political community with each other, that that handing um, over a document that protects certain kinds of rights or that guarantees certain kinds of arrangements around decision-making and policy-making, those kinds of things will actually be able to overcome that. And so the question becomes, how do you actually cultivate that community? And to me, when I teach classes on democracy and I teach a few, um, that's always the central question actually, is to think about democracy like a practice. Um, and what does it mean to practice that? What does it mean to actually try and be, um, in democratic community
0: with other people? And what makes it hard when it's hard? Uh, is it individual practice or a collective practice, do you think? Um, it, to me,
1: I mean, this is me, uh, editorializing. I think it, it, it has to be both. But if you're talking about one aspect of American democracy, that's really, um, to me, is really evident right now, especially is that probably the U.S. democratic uh, culture is too individualistic. That's my opinion as a political scientist. Too individualistic, um, and you see this in things like, like the mask debate and whether or not one should be whether or not wearing a mask or not wearing a mask is a question of political freedom. Mm-hmm. There is no. Liberal thinker. These are the thinkers who are the m- most inclined to be individualists, and I don't mean here liberal in the sense of like, like a Democrat or a progressive person. Liberal in the in the political theory world, liberal means someone who is committed to minimal government, individual rights, and uh, equality of those rights, and those. Include people like John Locke, whom you mentioned earlier, and Milton Friedman, the libertarians. Right. So think about a libertarian here when I say liberal. There is no uh, uh, liberal thinker in in the in the old tradition that says that you do not have obligations to other people in your community just because you have individual rights. So I don't know. Maybe that feels like it's a little bit in the weeds, but to me, that's a really important thing to think about. Like, what does it mean to think about um, both? how I can be free in my political community and what I nevertheless owe to other people that might put a limit on the freedom that I might otherwise exhibit. If, no, if I didn't live around any other people, I don't have to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. But because I live around other people doesn't mean I don't.
0: And I think it's interesting to me that you frame that as such a central component of democracy and of having a successful democracy or a successful democratic experiment because so often I think I do think about, or we've sort of in the public discourse frame the idea of democracy as the um, as having access to individual rights, the sort of the freedom conversation, um, and a lot of that has to do with what you can do as an individual. But to your point, holding up the system is a collective enterprise. Yeah,
1: absolutely, it's a collective enterprise, and it's one in which certainly individual rights are 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 fundamental. Mm-hmm. Right. And the and individual expression is fundamentally important, right? Um, but, but why? <laughs> because we are with each other, <laughs> right?
0: Like what you hear? Hi, I'm Mike Rottersman, Associate Director of Admission. If you're enjoying the Puget Sound podcast, you might want to consider taking a closer look we're currently offering a range of virtual visit activities, including virtual information sessions, snapshot tours, admitted student spotlights, and virtual open houses. And for admitted students, select in-person campus tours. There's truly something for everyone. And you can find out more at pugetsound.edu visit. Before we return to the episode, I want to jump back in and let you know that we've reached the point of our conversation where Alisa and I discuss her research, a conversation that involves topics of consent and sexual assault. If you'd like to skip that part of the conversation, you should stop listening at this time. One other thing I'm really excited to talk to you about, and I think this is another misconception people can have about theory that I had about theory before I came to college is this idea that it's something that happens only in the abstract or only in the way that you think about history. And I want to ask you about the work you're doing now in your research. You made the distinction earlier about um, your sort of teaching role and your researcher role. And the the work that you're doing now, I think, is just such a terrific example of how theory and sort of the concepts that you draw on in your teaching can be applied to very current issues and conversations. Yeah,
1: so right now the
0: project that I'm working on is about
1: rape culture. And I came to the project initially because I was interested in the question of consent, um, sexual consent in particular, but... um, (laughs) your your listeners may recall that consent, political consent and the idea of the consent of the governed is fairly central, (laughs) in fact, to the American Democratic Project. uh, Yeah, it turns out. um, And the idea of consent, of course, is the idea that you're not coerced into doing anything you wouldn't otherwise do, but you opt into it. And so there's a very clear connection between the political notion of consent and the way that sexual consent works. And I was thinking about that concept and I was thinking about how consent, I guess I would say is used and misused. Um, uh, especially how, how, how helpful that concept is or isn't when we think about the really the widespread incidents of sexual violence and that conversation that in my head, that conversation around a consent got me thinking about, um, rape culture and, uh, what people mean when they say that. So this is the theorist in me, right? So that's the question I ask. What do people mean when they say we live in a rape culture? And then the second question I ask is, is that a useful concept? And so I started the project thinking that it was, that rape culture was probably not a useful concept because it was, I think, misused and sort of kind of all-encompassing concept that maybe got us away from thinking about individual agency. Um, And then uh, as I began doing the research, I think I I became more and more attuned to thinking about rape culture as a really actually core and essential concept, which I think is interesting, right? I want to be honest about that. Like, you know, this is is what it means to do honest research. You start with one one set of ideas, and you let the research take you where it goes. You don't just reinforce what you believe. You you let you let yourself be critical about it. Um, and so, the project I'm working on now is trying to think about the different ways uh, to define rape culture and to think about it in ways that allow us to explore the the, the many many ways that narratives about um, worth and about uh, certainly race, gender, sexuality about um, who's innocent and who can be guilty, like all of these kinds of questions emerge and frame basically who gets to count as a victim of rape and who gets to count as a perpetrator. And that set of narratives conceals a bunch of different people who are either people who are in groups of people that are highly likely to be victimized by sexual assault, but that are not recognized as such, and groups of people who are highly likely to be perpetrators, but are not recognized as such. And even the way that we talk about things um, like, um, like child sexual assault, which is referred to often still as something like molestation, when it is in fact child rape, what is it, what are we doing when we can't use that language to describe that? And who are we protecting? Who's being shielded? And, and, and given the sort of the prevalence of sexual violence in the United States against children and against all kinds of people, who are we not seeing as as people who are really victimized? And so that's that's where the project kind of went. And so, and that project emerged out of questions that students were asking on campus, I have to
0: say. It didn't come I was about massive. to ask you that I imagine being on a college campus and doing that work There's a lot of intersection. Oh, I mean, absolutely.
1: And it is literally from my students that this question emerged. I was actually teaching a class um, on political consent and we did a reading. um, And one of my students came in and told me that she couldn't, she wanted to talk to me about the class before she went into the class because she was having a hard time um, separating out her own experiences with sexual violence from
0: this reading on consent. And it kind when of you say on. political consent. Give me a sense of what we're talking about, because I imagine it uh, would not be have the explicit connection. It doesn't. Political consent is about um,
1: about uh, the idea that you uh, do not have to obey a government that you have not
0: consented to obey. Right. And framed like that, I think the connection to sexual assault and sexual consent is pretty evident. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. But to see a student make that connection um, and, the, and I, I mean, the way I think about it is like the word consent was reverberating in her brain so much mm-hmm. around this experience she had had with sexual violence that she couldn't even engage that conversation around political consent just is, was the thing that made me see the connection. That, and that's literally what moved me to that, because I have to say, I, I'm doing a lot of work now. I'm in an area that I, I did not study when I was in graduate school. I studied <laughs> theories of education. <laughs> like, it's really different. Um, and that was its own kind of challenge, because I had to kind of learn a new area, and new set of literatures. But, um,
0: uh, but, you know, you go where, where you, you go. Well, and I want to ask you about that too, because I, often it's easy to think about research in the natural science sense. So one, that a researcher is like white guy in lab coat, but two, that the question you're trying to answer is quantifiable and has very clearly defined borders, and maybe you're going to get a yes, no answer or a proven or not proven. And the question and the project you've just described as you've said feels very much not like that it is something that evolves over time and you're following it where it goes and what does that process look like for you <laughs> to do that work yourself like what how do you even get started on a question like this well so to
1: to to turn back to something we talked about earlier it it in some ways research is highly individualistic and in some ways it's highly communal mm. so um so that communal uh, experience looks like a lot of things. You start to read, you start to pay attention to scholars who are working in areas that are relative to or relevant to what you're doing. Um, you start to build relationships with folks and those kinds of things. But um, but you know what I what I think I'm doing um, is really. Creating a workable concept of rape culture that in fact would allow people to study it in more quantitative ways. That's what theory tells, it gives us a way to sort of say this is what this thing is and this is where it appears and this is what it does. And so um, I have to be honest with you, it, it looks like a lot of, it's a lot of thinking and a lot of writing And a lot of trying to, it's not an easy thing to define a term Mm -hmm. like freedom, (laughs) right? Or or rape culture. What is that thing? If you look around at the way people use it, they use it in a way that is almost devoid of meaning. Hmm. It's applied to everything. Same with the word democracy, right? Yeah. People talk about democracy in all kinds of contexts that aren't really, that that basically nullify any specific meaning to the term. Right. Right. And so so you can't just look around and say, well, how are other people using it? And that's what it means. You look around and you see there's so many ways that people are using it that we don't know what it means. So the the task is to refine. And that's just a task of thinking and research and reading and paying attention to other people and and pushing your brain as hard as you can push it to to go farther than you thought it could go on a particular thing. And um, that's what it looks like. Um, I know that that's intangible and I know it's probably really hard for people to imagine what that's like, but I mean, (laughs) I told my students the other day, I recently uh, wrote something that is, I think about 30 pages. And I told my students as a writing practice, you should always have two documents open on your computer, the one you're writing into, and then one that's called a scraps file. And you should never just delete stuff you wrote. (laughs) <laughs> but you should cut it into the scraps file. And it kind of liberates you to cut stuff, which students are often reluctant to do. And it also reminds you that you need to streamline. <laughs> like I said, I wrote this 30 page thing and my scraps folder is 40 pages long. <laughs> right, i just, I'm like, yeah, you just write a lot to try and figure out what, what you're thinking and what the argument is and, and how it makes sense to think about this concept.
0: I mean really what I'm thinking is that sounds hard <laughs> like that really sounds like work <laughs> I mean I know it is <laughs> like but just in the sense that I think it's so easy to imagine that kind of work as um I don't even want to say this word but as an indulgence right like I'll think about this and I'll reflect on it but what I what I know to be true, and what I'm also hearing you say, is that there's a product still that it's a lot of thinking and writing, but it's it's to a goal and with a purpose, and with the goal of something happening. And, and, of this, and
1: with a goal in this particular case of uh, a book manuscript that mm-hmm. will become a book that is 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 not just for people like me. Hmm right? That's for students and it's for practitioners and it's for people who care about this particular problem and want to understand it differently. Um, so there's, so what, but, but to, to, but the, I guess the point is to get to the place where you could articulate something with enough clarity that other people can follow it. Just, it does take a lot of, um, a lot of, um, a lot of thinking and, and I, I do ask myself this question a lot and it maybe it does sound self-indulgent, but a lot of times I'll look at something I'll ri- I've written and I'll say, I need to push this farther. Mm-hmm. I need to push myself farther. I say that to my students a lot too. And they intuitively kind of know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like you're thinking, but think harder. Yeah. And they're all, okay, I can think harder and they do. And I mean, we all do that. When you're confronting a problem that seems intractable, you push it harder political theory is a lot of intractable problems and that's, yeah, that's kind of in a way, the way I, the
0: way I'm able to write. Do you notice when you're working with students on one of those intractable problems, are there things, are there universal experiences as folks start to learn, how do I approach this? How do I do this work? How do I think about it?
1: I don't know if the, I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to say there's universal probably it, experiences, but there are there are some, some common experiences. Um, one thing I notice a lot in my classes, especially so if I have a student who takes um, like an introduction to political theory class with me, and then maybe they're taking an upper division class a little bit later, so then their first upper division class, they might go from having written really successful papers in the intro class to all of a sudden writing papers that are getting, you know, maybe C's or something like that or B's they're used to getting A's. And, and, uh, when I talk to students about that, I say, and I, and I think this is, this is a really common experience. So your writing has not caught up to your thinking.
0: Hmm.
1: So you, um, You've been thinking about these kinds of questions. You've developed a skill set around sort of the basic, but the more complicated the thinking you're doing, the harder it is to convey it in writing. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that for sophomore students, I see what we might call a kind of a sophomore slump, so to speak. But what it is is students needing to like let their writing catch up to their thinking. And the way I try and encourage that is to say, you know, you're thinking really in really complex ways, and that's that's very hard to do, right? And and it's great that you're doing it and you just have to learn how to communicate it. Um, So I think that's that's a pretty common experience.
0: It's one of the things that's so cool about college, that's such a treat about that experience and that I still remember from my senior year sort of, I can actually picture where I was standing outside McIntyre when I realized I got better at this. Like my questions are more interesting. They're more complicated. They're sharper. My ability to answer and put together a kind um, you know, compelling argument or explanation without wandering off on all these sort of side pathways is better. That's a skill that I have. And what a treat to be able to learn that through doing it rather than through somebody necessarily sitting you down and just talking about the mechanics of how to write a paper.
1: Yeah. And I I was just talking to one of our students who's going to graduate in a, you know, in a week who, uh, who got accepted to Lewis and Clark law school, which is great. Mm -hmm. Um, was talking just exactly about this. And I was expressing that exact same feeling, right. Of, of, uh, and I was, I was joking with him. I'm like, I remember you sitting in my office your very first semester. He was one of my advisees. So he's been with me the whole time. And I think he's probably had me in five classes or something, <laughs> Unbelievable. but, um, which is, a, which is a lifestyle choice that I don't remember. <laughs> this is what, this is what this student did. Um, uh, you know, and he was talking about about exactly that, like i just I just am ready to go to law school, and I just am you know, I think about when I sat in here my first semester of college, and I was struggling with this and I was struggling with that, and I just feel really confident and so excited, and he was just like bubbling forth with this enthusiasm, um both because he's excited about what's next but also because he feels really prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I love that
0: those are the those are the best moments well. And a testament both to that student, but also to you, right? I mean, that it, to, back to the individual and the collective, it really is a shared enterprise to get somebody there. Elisa, we end every episode, I ask everybody the same four questions. The first question is, do you have a favorite spot on campus and where is it? Oh, that's such a hard question. I love our campus,
1: and I don't live very far from it, so I actually walk through it often. Um, if I'm passing through the president's woods, if I were thinking about it in a professional sense, I would say in the abstract, my favorite place on campus is actually my classroom, wherever, <laughs> whatever, wherever that is. That's really true. That's probably the most fun I ever have on campus. Uh, but yeah, I do. I just there's so many great spots but probably the president's woods. What are you reading right now? I am reading I am reading I'm looking at my, my desk I'm reading a book called uh, a Couple things because of course <laughs> <laughs> you only read one thing that makes sense. <laughs> I am reading um, I'm reading a book called uh, Nomad Land which is the it's the, a nonfiction journalistic account that is the basis for the, the feature film uh, that I think just won the Academy Award for Best Film. Um, and that's really interesting. And it's about, it's about what the film's about. It's about, uh, uh, sort of senior population that sort of are migrating and working. And that's pretty interesting. I'm reading, um, The Night Watchman, <laughs> uh, and I'm reading, um, this book called, uh, uh, uh white power politics, black world order, which is actually a critical reflection on the role of uh, uh, race and colonialism in the actual structuring of the political science field, which I know is not a book for everyone, (laughs) but it's like kind of meta. It's kind of cool to be reading a book, not about political science, uh, not about politics, but about actually that the field and how it emerged. So that's kind of.
0: Where's the best place to eat in Tacoma? the best place to eat in Tacoma.
1: Um, that depends. I'm a very, very huge lover of food and it very much depends on what you are looking for. I think the best sandwiches in town are at 1111. I really enjoy um, Indo and La Ca for uh, takeout food these days, which is how we're eating most of our food. Um, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, there's just, I think there's great food in Tacoma. So there's a lot of options. Um, Wooden City, that's a kind of nicer place to go. And I love that place. Matriarch, which is maybe for the adults in the podcast audience,
0: uh, (laughs) has amazing cocktails. And their couches are so nice. They're so nice. (laughs) I miss them so much. I know. I'm so excited when we can go back inside to the velvet couches and the potted plants. (laughs) (laughs) really. That's right. That place is great. So
1: yeah, exactly. Um, This is making me nostalgic for like what I haven't done for
0: 19 months or whatever it's been. It it really does feel like we're close to the velvet couches. (laughs) Maybe. I hope hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Uh, Lastly, Elisa, what makes Puget sound special? You know, I...
1: The, a lot of the people is the, is the answer. Um, and I'm just trying to think about how to say that in a way that's actually sort of tangible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, when I, I taught at a couple of different places before I came to Puget Sound. And and and, and one thing that I remember um, feeling, and people say this all the time, but it's really, really true. Like I thought I have never taught a nicer group of students than the students at Puget Sound. And that, and I, I still feel that I think generous and and kind and really committed to, um, I mean, I guess the way students put it is making the world a better place. And I think that they mean that in a like big make your mark kind of a way. And I think part of the task is to say there's ways that you do that every single day, Mm -hmm. Um, but they do. Um, And I feel that way certainly about my um, really amazing staff colleagues like you, and I feel that way about my faculty colleagues as well. Um, I feel very lucky to have the students I do and the colleagues I do. We have a nice view of the mountain too. Oh, also very true. Also actually from pretty close to your office. Not too far. Although my office get really gets me a view of the practice field, but I mean... <laughs>
0: Not quite. I know that the mountain is. I know it's there. The way. <laughs> it's covered in clouds most of the time, anyway. That's so. true. It's in, <laughs> that it's, that? in, it's in all of our imaginations all exactly. the time. What's that? It's in all of our imaginations all the time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, Elisa Kessel, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Lane and Becker is so always so nice to talk to you. for listening to PS the Puget Sound podcast if you're interested in applying to or visiting Puget Sound you can find out more at pugetsound.edu admission and of course you can follow us on Twitter Instagram and Facebook at univ u-n-i-v Puget Sound I'm Elena Becker and we'll see you next time for PS the Puget Sound podcast